we read in verses 5 and 6, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire blows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So fire coming out of the mouths of prophets, fire-breathing prophets, uh, this is not something that's ever been seen in scripture before. And that's caused some commentators to try to reinterpret this and say, well, it'll be fire coming down from heaven, like in the days of Elijah. Uh, but it's uh, an unnecessary reinterpretation. We'll, we'll take a principle out of the days of Moses here, but essentially, God is able to do a new thing at any time he pleases, uh, and a new thing will often draw attention to itself and show God's power over nature. So back in Moses' day when he is uh, warring against the, uh, the people of Korah, who are a Jewish group that have decided that they don't really like following Moses, they don't see why uh, they should follow Moses over following anyone else from the people of Israel. So Moses shows them God's choosing him by God doing a new thing in their sight. So Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. So he said, if any of these die a natural death, then I've not been sent by God because he's not given me power. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs and they descend alive in Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. And in most cases where we have prophets in the land of Israel working miracles or sending plagues, at the time they do that, it's a new thing. It's old to us because it's been inscripturated. It's been written in the scriptures for us to become familiar and used to it. Uh, but that does not mean that these prophets in future record are bound to the way that God has done it before. So we're going to take this as literal as we possibly can because the best God has given us, which is incredibly great revelation, uh, the best we can do with that revelation is to take God at his word. Uh, so we have no need to reinterpret it to try to uh, make it more palatable. Uh, rather, when we see these fire-breathing prophets, we will interpret it just as that fire coming out of their mouths. Uh, but that does, of course, actually, most of these plagues will remind us of either Elijah's ministry or Moses' ministry. Uh, so in 2 Kings 1.12, we read of Elijah. Elijah replied to them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50, your 50 men. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. Uh, so God had given Elijah a plague of fire to send on the armies 
that uh, was it? I can't remember which king, Jezebel's husband, uh, had sent these military men against him, and he called down fire from heaven to uh, to consume them. Elijah also put a drought on the land uh, prior to his his uh, fire from heaven. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, Ahab, there it is, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So God has delegated a certain amount of power to Elijah. And this is uh, a little different than the way he works with other prophets, where he will give them a specific plague like he did with Moses. Uh, and he is to reiterate that plague to the people. Here we see that God has actually given Elijah the power to command these plagues. That's the same kind of authority and power that God is going to give these two witnesses uh, in, during the tribulation period. We understand the duration of Elijah's uh, drought from the epistle of James and also the gospel of Luke. Uh, in Luke, we get it from Jesus Christ's own words. Um, in James, we have a record probably of uh, what he understood from Jesus Christ. Because as far as I could find in the Old Testament, we're not given the specific duration. We know it's a couple of years, uh, but James identifies it as exactly three and a half years. So Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, that's also very important because the ministry of these witnesses is also three and a half years. It will not last the entire seven years of tribulation. Uh, Moses was uh, instructed to send a bag of blood on uh, the Egyptians. Now, we all know the flag, so we don't have to read this one. But essentially... Uh, Moses was told, your rod or Aaron, put your rod over the Nile, and it will turn to blood. And so it did. And all the animals in it died. Now that power uh, for these two witnesses will be over all the water of the entire earth. They will have power to do that too. All right. So attempts to identify who these witnesses are uh, sometimes is a uh, exercise in futility, but uh, it's worth going through some of the ideas here. Uh, one idea is that Enoch is one of these witnesses, and again, we've got two witnesses to identify, so of the three I'm presenting you, but four theories, uh, we only have to knock one of them out. Uh, Enoch, uh, he was one of two men raptured uh, rather than dying. He and Elijah were the only two who departed this earth without death. Uh, he was a prophet. The book of Jude tells us or identifies him as a prophet. He was a Gentile where Elijah was a Jew. And some people find this important because the ministry of these two witnesses, they identify as worldwide. So needing to be for Gentiles and for Jews. I don't uh, find that argument convincing. Uh, but we'll look at that in the text. Uh, Enoch is from a different dispensation than Elijah. Some find that important um, as 
to say that God is drawing some continuity between dispensations here. Usually I found this uh, to be an idea of progressive dispensationalists who are searching for continuity rather than distinctions between dispensations. But again, we'll look at that also. Uh, finally, he is a type of the ruptured church and not a type of Israel. Uh, in, so in my personal opinion, Enoch does not fit very well. Uh, simply because he is the type of the raptured church. Uh, he, he is not going to be present during the tribulation any more than we will be present during the tribulation. The purpose of Enoch's rapture is essentially to give credence to our own promise of rapturing, uh, that we will escape that judgment. The reason some people say Enoch must come back uh, is because he's one of two men not to die, and they interpret the passage in Hebrews that we're about to look at as meaning that all men must die. Thus, Enoch has to come back and die. Uh, but I, I think they failed to realize that an entire generation of the church will be raptured without dying. So that doesn't hold any water at all. Uh, but let's look here. Enoch was a prophet, Jude 14 identifies him as so it says it was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation of Adam prophesied so he is doing the action of prophesying he is identified as a prophet in the text uh, all right so this idea of uh, the necessity of all men to die uh, is actually just looking at this verse uh, backwards in its transitivity uh, so let's read it Hebrews 9.27, and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Now this is an argument from nature in order to show us something spiritual, that Christ's death is as final as our death that we don't die, come back, and die again. This is an argument against reincarnation. Uh, but the purpose of this is not to give us uh, scriptural revelation about death, but rather it's to give us scriptural revelation about the finality of salvation using uh, what we recognize from nature as, uh, as a singular point in time. Now, that's not to say God doesn't have a different plan for certain beings, but it's recognizing the pattern here that death is final, just like salvation is final. The death of Christ was final, not needing to ever happen again. Now, that is also not to say that men can die and come back. That is not the teaching of scripture. It's not what we see throughout uh, uh, scriptural revelation, death is final. Um, however, God is working through Jesus Christ to overcome death. But the overcoming of that death is final. So that once man has been uh, resurrected, there can be no death again after that. For us, that looks like in the dispensation of the church is that uh, just like Lazarus, someone can swoon and come back to life. 
but no one can be resurrected and then die again. That death uh, was unique with Lazarus. It was a specific, uh, a specific miracle of Jesus Christ, not one that is repeated on a frivolous uh, whim. I guess it was in order to mark the the period in time when the king had come offering the kingdom. The king had come offering resurrection from death to life. It's not something that happens in the 20th century uh, because parents pray over their unfortunately deceased child. Uh, this is not something scripture teaches us. Uh, and it also is usually, it's a medical death, not a spiritual death in the sense that the doctors have pronounced someone dead uh, who then comes back to life. But that does not mean that God has actually uh, taken their spirit. Uh, it doesn't mean the ghost has left the machine. Uh, so whenever I encounter this verse, I feel like that's important to, to distinguish that um, God can work miracles, uh, but God does not work miracles uh, simply because we are, uh, we are sad. Uh, Miracles are for a very specific purpose, and that is to show something that he is doing in history. Um, and it will be something that he uses in the future to show that the dispensation is changing. Um, so that's always a sensitive topic, but it's uh, important to discuss there. But basically what that's saying is, uh, or my purpose in bringing that verse up is to show that no, not all men must die. The verse doesn't say that, uh, and that's what that verse is usually used in this context and in Revelation 11 to try to prove that Enoch has to come back to die, but uh, that is uh, not what scripture is teaching. Uh, Enoch was indeed raptured, and he's raptured much in the same way as we, the church, um, if we are in the eternal generation, will be raptured. So we read in Genesis 5, verses 21 to 24, Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. This is instantaneous in a moment. Enoch was raptured away to heaven. Uh, to be with God. This, we as the church look back and identify as analogous with how we will be raptured. Uh, so when we encounter uh, 1 Corinthians 15, it has a striking parallel with Enoch. And I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does this perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So no one can enter into the blessedness of heaven without their body being either translated or resurrected into the glorified body. 
But we must remember that Old Testament saints at this point during the tribulation have not yet been resurrected. They are still awaiting their resurrection bodies. Thus, some sort of a resuscitation is not outside of the capability of God. Uh, once he has resurrected that body, it would be um, outside his natural working and outside uh, anything that would not be contradictory to scripture. So it would be impossible for someone from the church, having been resurrected into their resurrection place, to return during the period of this tribulation, but it would not be impossible uh, for an Old Testament saint to come back at this time. In fact, even uh, in the Old Testament, Abraham was uh, resurrected once uh, in order to show King Saul uh, the, the evils of necromancy that he was attempting with, with the prophets or the, the witch of Endor. Uh, anyways, that brings us to Moses. Uh, and, and I'm going from the weakest argument to the strongest argument here, just so you guys know. I'm going to be as harsh with Moses as I was with Enoch because I, I don't see the option of being Enoch at all, but it's a very popular view. Uh, with Moses, uh, it is possible, if not likely. Uh, his burial is unknown. Um, he was a prophet. He was a steward during the dispensation of law, just like Elijah. And this period of the tribulation will be particularly, particularly analogous to the period of law, uh, in that the Jews will attempt to reestablish the temple sacrifice. Um, and it will be accepted to a point by God, uh, but their requirement to accept Jesus Christ as their king, which is uh, throughout all of the history of the law, is still necessary. But he's essentially giving them seven years more uh, opportunity at the end of uh, the dispensation of grace to finish out their program. So... Uh, having two stewards of the law return at that period of time would be much more reasonable than having one from the law and one from the patriarchs come back. Uh, there's no reason for a steward of the patriarchal dispensation to return to a dispensation much or a period of time much like the dispensation of law. Uh, and finally, with Moses, resuscitation is not resurrection. He's not taken on a resurrection body. So it's not impossible for him to come back in that period of time. Uh, Moses was identified as a prophet uh, near the end of Deuteronomy. Actually, he's not identified very often as a prophet. This is the only one I could find where he's actually put in conjunction with this uh, subjective complement prophet. Uh, However, his function was much like a prophet. His specific uh, categorization would be a steward uh, under a dispensational change. Uh, much like Paul, much like Adam, uh, Moses stands a, a bit of Elijah in his position here in Israel. He was a steward of the dispensation, not simply a prophet, which is not a low class uh, in uh, in the servanthood of a believer, uh, but uh, still, uh, Moses isn't identified only as a prophet. So it says, now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him, 
and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. So Moses functioned as a prophet, uh, but his title was not necessarily a prophet. Uh, the body of Moses was disputed. Uh, Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this is something only revealed here in the epistle of Jude. Um, it likely comes from uh, non-canonical books from Israel in their Talmud or uh, their Kabbalah where uh, there would have been truth to this statement, but not to the entire book which came out of. And the only reason we know there's any truth to this statement is because it ended up in a canonical book. Uh, so that where he got this information from, it was either from non-canonical non literature that the Holy Spirit confirmed to him, or it was revealed directly from the Holy Spirit to Jude. Um, so either way, because it is in uh, canonized scripture, we can attest to the truth of this, that the, uh, the body of Moses is not, uh, it's, it's not common knowledge at all where it is. Um, and this is also on a spiritual level, not just, or on a spirit level, not just in our physical level. It wasn't just that the children of Israel didn't know where he was buried, but even the devil has no idea where, where Moses was buried. And that's one reason, in fact, this is probably the primary reason why people identify Moses as one of those who will come back uh, as these two witnesses. Uh, this is confirmed back in Deuteronomy that uh, the children of Israel had no idea where he was buried. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. So that he, he buried him, that is referring to God. God himself took care of the burial of Moses. And it has been hidden from the children of Israel. And it has also been hidden from uh, the devil himself. Now, a more likely reason why this appeared in Jude within the context of the book of Jude uh, was that had they known where Moses was buried, they would have been tempted to worship the burial place of Moses. Um, and that could be a possible distraction that the devil would rather have them worshiping this dead grave than worshiping God. Um, however, that doesn't mean that there isn't something to that here in Revelation chapter 11. All right, and just a little context here for the resurrection to eternal life versus resurrection to life. Jesus Christ distinguishes um, the difference between uh, take back on this mortal coil versus taking on the glorified body. Uh, so in John 11, this is during the, uh, the resurrection of Lazarus where he's talking with Martha and Mary, and he, uh, in talking with Martha, we'll read it here, uh, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, 
I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Jesus says he's coming back. And Martha says, basically, yeah, I know uh, everyone's coming back on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. So Christ answers her on her level. She's talking about the final resurrection, and he responds to her uh, on the level that she needs to be responded to. But he brings the conversation back to the immediacy of what he's talking about, which is Lazarus, yes, he's going to be resurrected on the last day, but Jesus Christ is going to bring him back even at that time. Uh, so John eleven forty one to 44, we read, so they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So we see a difference here between the final resurrection and what, for lack of a better word, I would call a resuscitation. However, that's not the best word to use here because uh, Lazarus didn't swoon and come back from a swoon. He was dead and he buried for four days uh, to the point where he began to stick. He was rotting and Jesus brought him back to life. This was to show Jesus Christ as the king who was promised who would have power over death and life uh, so that. This was a confirming miracle, which confirmed uh, the message that Jesus Christ had brought about the kingdom of God. Uh, so it's not outside of God's power to resurrect without it being the final resurrection. All right. So Elijah, uh, this one has the strongest evidence for it. Uh, he is one of the two men raptured, not dead. Again, that's not strong evidence uh, because Enoch, I mean, that's not strong enough to put him in. But if the quantity of evidence here, uh, it points towards Elijah. He was a prophet. Uh, he was a Hebrew in Israel's divided kingdom, uh, which put him smack dab in the dispensation of law and in a transitional period in that law where it was going from the theocracy in Israel uh, to the captivity where it would become then the or the, uh, the time of the Gentiles. Uh, so it's a transitory period in time similar to the tribulation. Uh, his power was, let's see, his power was very similar to these prophets uh, or these witnesses in the tribulation. And uh, he was explicitly prophesied to return before the day of the Lord. Uh, and I think that is the strongest evidence for Elijah there. Uh, so Elijah was a prophet. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So Elijah identifies himself as a prophet. Um, Elijah was raptured in 2 Kings 2.11. 
as they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Now, I want you all to notice a stark difference between the rapture of Enoch, the rapture of the church, and the rapture of Elijah. Enoch and the church disappear in a, the twinkling of an eye. But here, Elijah is carried off into heaven so that people can watch him as he is going. Uh, these little uh, differences can seem inconsequential, but uh, I would wager it's better to, uh, to hang on these seemingly inconsequentials than to risk just uh, tossing them into the ether and saying they mean nothing. Uh, when God makes a distinction, it's important to recognize that distinction. And we're, we're going to come back to that when we look at the resurrection of these witnesses. Uh, Malachi prophesied about Elijah that he would return in the last days. Uh, and that prophecy goes, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now that's before the great and terrible day of the Lord, not before the incarnation of the Lord. He will, uh, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. <clears throat> We're coming up to that one too. <laughs> to say, you know, we've, we've got a couple moving pieces going on here. Uh, all right. So the probably the best evidence points towards it being Elijah and Moses. And I've purposefully held out the single best piece of evidence for this combined uh, interpretation, which is the transfiguration, where Christ had prophesied that some of the disciples would see the coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom, uh, which is, again, analogous to the last days as well, where he will finally come and restore the kingdom. But we read in Matthew 16, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. So when Jesus Christ was transfigured, Moses and Elijah appeared there, and this transfiguration was specifically to show the coming of his kingdom. Uh, so Moses and Elijah were, uh, were congruent with that arrival of the kingdom. Now, all of that said, uh, there is nothing here in Revelation which indicates that these will be any sort of resurrected beings. So I also want to propose this interpretation, which is uh, probably actually a stronger interpretation than any uh, resurrected being, either Elijah or Moses. Uh, and that would be two prophets arriving in the last days in the spirit of Moses and Elijah, um, similar to John the Baptist uh, coming in the spirit of Elijah. All right, so John the Baptist, uh, back in Matthew 11, we read from uh, Jesus Christ, 
as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Now, this is Jesus Christ drawing an applicational fulfillment uh, from a prophecy to, uh, to John the Baptist. And he's going to clarify this a bit more uh, in, oh, he's going to clarify it a bit more in a later passage I have. Uh, but here, when we ask Elijah about who he is, uh, this is the testimony, or this, sorry, when we ask John about who he is, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you of the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, are you, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us, what do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So when Jesus is asked about John, he says he is Elijah. When John is asked about John, he says he is not Elijah. And scripture cannot contradict itself. Uh, and I promise you this is not going to be circular reasoning, but... How do we rationalize these two seemingly contradictory statements? Uh, well, uh, there's a bit more to be said about, uh, about John and his position as Elijah, but we start first with the angel's revelation to Elizabeth about uh, bearing, or to Zacharias about bearing John. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So again, as I said, this is an applicational fulfillment so that the statement that Jesus Christ just made in verse 10 of, of Matthew chapter 11, he now clarifies in verses 11 to 15. Truly I say to you among those born of men or of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come, and who has, or he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So here there is. Uh, there is a conditional clause attached to John being Elijah. It is if they are willing to accept it. 
the it isn't the fact of Elijah being John, but the it refers back to the kingdom, which has been taken by force. Uh, the first century Jews were not asked to accept John as Elijah. They were asked to accept the kingdom uh, that Jesus Christ was offering. They did not accept it. And also, not in his foreknowledge, knew that they would not accept it. However, it was still a valid offer in that John could have been Elijah if first century Israel was willing to accept the kingdom. But they were not willing to accept the kingdom, so John was not Elijah, but John was John, who came with the power and authority of Elijah. But that being said, uh, God is perfectly capable and able of bringing back his two witnesses, probably Moses and Elijah, possibly two in the spirit of Moses and Elijah, uh, to prophesy against the Antichrist, to prophesy during the rebuilding of the temple, and to bear witness to God through the power and authority that he's given to them over the entire earth. Uh, so these prophets will preach during the first half of the tribulation, they will also likely be the initiation of the conversion of the 144,000 who were sealed in chapter 7. If you remember back to chapter 7, the sealing that the uh, angel did was not the sealing of faith. It was not the sealing of conversion, but it was the sealing to a task. They were given a specific ministry to do. The prerequisite of that was that they were already saved. How did they get saved? How did they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? It was probably from the ministry of these two witnesses, which begin uh, at the very beginning of the tribulation period. So again, this is a, one of the non-chronological points in Revelation where we're given a bit more of the backstory of how these things are all coming about. Uh, and it's also a point where we get a little hope of Jesus Christ, the king, who is about to come and take his kingdom. Uh, these prophets will have power to send plagues. The plagues will appear during the first half of the tribulation. It's possible that some of these seals and trumpets uh, will be the work of these two prophets, um, although it is also possible that the plagues of these two prophets will be completely over and against uh, those uh, seals and trumpets so that their plagues will be additional to the plagues of the seals and trumpets. Uh, they will preach until the midpoint when the Antichrist breaks his covenant and ceases all, uh, all function at the temple.